You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As a church family, we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and today we are in Matthew, the book of Matthew, verses 38 and on. If you'd like a Bible, there are some available on the tables in the back. Those are for you to take. Also, uh, we post resources uh, online at that website. You can check that out. Uh, we got a study guide for you that goes along with this series, as well as corollary resources. You can also sign up to receive uh, email updates and things like that uh, at that website. Check it out. So we have covered in the Sermon on the Mount, so far we've covered um, unrighteous rage and anger uh, and slander. We've covered uh, lust, uh, adultery, uh, divorce, uh, fornication. And uh, in my prayers this week, I said, Jesus, is this week going to be easier? It's got to get easier. His answer was no. (laughs) Because while retaliation and love of enemies is not as... um, Striking, perhaps, as some of those other topics, it is uh, perhaps exponentially more difficult to live out this text. And as we study uh, the word of the Lord together this morning, I believe that we'll find two loved and ignored commands, two loved and ignored commands, two godly values that are held in tension, two godly values that are held in tension, two types of people in the world and one who actually does this command. Two loved and ignored commands, two values in tension, two kinds of people, and one person who actually lived this out. First, two loved and ignored commands. They're loved, they're famous, you've heard them before, I'll read them here. Verse 44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And everyone said, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? Or amen works too, right? Right? Uh, that's nice. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah, when you're the enemy. But when you're the one who's been wronged, you don't think this is very nice, do you? So, love our enemies. It's famous. We've heard Jesus say it before. It's saturated in our culture, and we ignore it because it's exceptionally difficult. And there's a second one that's similar. Uh, Some of you have heard this before. You see it in verse 39. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. To put it another way, turn the other cheek. It's nice, isn't it? It's kind. 
It's gentle until you have to do it. And then it's horrible. This is probably one of the worst texts in the Bible as it relates to how I feel about my own capacities to be a good person. What I mean to say is, how can you read this and think I'm a good person? The weight of this is insane. And one of the reasons it makes it so difficult is because it holds together two godly values in tension. Two godly values held together in tension. The value of justice and the value of mercy. Vengeance and compassion. Retribution and grace. Longings that we have inside of us come smashing together here in this moment. You have in verse 38, Jesus begins, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That's, that's a, 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 a famous text. He starts off, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and then he goes on. And that, that idea uh, in Latin, it's lex talionis. It's an old idea, and the idea, the command given by God is a good command. The command is given to limit retribution, to limit or to stop or put a buffer on escalating vengeance, which is our habit. I'll, I'll prove it to you. Have you ever seen children in the playground and then one wrongs the other, right? Bobby spits on Billy. You've seen this, haven't you? Somebody's toy gets taken. And by the way, there is no uh, more litigious group of people than five-year-olds. They are constantly appealing to the court. He did it. It's his fault. He did it first, right? And so what you have, if you leave the, uh, Billy and Bobby, there they are, and, and Billy spit on Bobby, what's Bobby going to do back? He's going to spit a little bit more. He, he, it's going to be a loogie, right? He's going to make sure that not only does the one who did the first act uh, feel like there's been retribution, but it's going to be a little bit more, right? When we serve up vengeance, there's always a little more than the thing we had to eat, right? I mean, when we serve it, when we dish it out, it's always a little bit more. Our tendency when we are wronged is to desire uh, vengeance, and the vengeance is always more. And so that idea of eye for an eye was given by God as a means of buffering or stemming unchecked retribution. To put it another way, you make sure that the punishment fits the Punishment fits the crime, right? Because, because a victim can actually do more injustice in the name of their victimhood. You know that, don't you? You know that our tendency when we are wronged is to use that to justify evil. We live in a culture. We live in a culture that glorifies retribution, personal vendettas. Any movie that Liam Neeson has been in or Bruce Willis, or Mel Gibson, anyone that made money anyways, is about what? Personal retribution, vengeance. Oh boy, when Liam Neeson's daughter was taken, oh boy, what did he do? He murdered hundreds of people, and we all felt good about it. We paid money that we're sitting there eating the popcorn and be like, kill him, kill him, you get him, that's right, you kill him. And we felt great about it. Every time Liam Neeson, boom, 
we're like, that's right. And we generally don't view that and say, do you think this unchecked aggression, this vendetta is righteous? We don't ask that question. We just think one injustice happened to you, therefore you get a, you get a free pass. And I mean, this is what we're feeding our souls. Now listen, that desire, like if, if someone takes my daughter in my mind, I think I'm doing the same thing, right? I'm not going to make it past, I'm not going to make it to the airport because I don't go to the gym as much as Liam Neeson. Like, I'm not going to make it all the way to the end of the movie with my current condition, right? He's in great shape. But in my mind, I think, you mess with my daughter, I'm coming for you, right? But let, play that out. If I become judge, jury, and executioner every time that I'm wronged or harmed, what is the world like? Because who hasn't wronged me, right? I said hello to you earlier this morning, and some of you did not say hello back. And I just sent someone out to slash your tires. Now, is that just or unjust, right? Did the punishment fit the crime, hmm? Some of you are like, he's not serious, right? <laughs> we'll find out in about an hour. You know, one of the things about sermon illustrations is you always want people to actually remember them. I bet if I slashed your tires, you'd remember that sermon <laughs> on retribution and vengeance. See? That's a good idea. <laughs> now, there's a distinction here between personal vendetta and retribution and the role of the state or authorities to bring about what I would argue is a pro an approximation of justice. To put it another way, what Jesus is saying to not do here is personal and stating myself as the judge, jury, and executioner where I'm the law, right? Judge Dredd, I'm the law. I am the law. I'm the law, I'm the judge, I'm the jury, I'm the executioner. Now, what he's not saying, what Jesus is not saying here is that there's just complete passivity, that there's no uh, recourse to the law. He's, right, it's the law's job, it's the system, it's the organization, it's the state, it's the police force, it's the military, it's their, certain organizations have jobs, but when the state, now check this out, when the state is used to execute personal vendettas, what do we call that? Corruption. But when the state seeks an approximation of justice, they try to be, right? So you'll have judges recusing themselves if they're personally involved in a case. That's an approximation of justice. What we're trying to get at is justice, not vengeance. You with me? That there's a distinction here between personal retaliation and vengeance and the desire and the pursuit of justice. For those of us that are, uh, this, this is really hitting hard, let me ask you a question. Uh, as you've pursued uh, personal vendettas, has it ever led to your flourishing? Like, do you ever feel satisfied? Or do you just feel miserable? Like, you got the person fired, you, got, you, you, you took all that money from them, and then what? Right? It still feels miserable, right? Personal vendettas, they don't satisfy because when we take them on personally, we don't actually beget justice. What we do is we propagate injustice. We, we add more evil to the world. When we answer evil for evil, there's just more evil to go around for everybody, isn't there? And Jesus here, he hones in. Look at, uh, he, gives us four, he gives us four specific examples of how this plays out and two great big commands. Check this out. Uh, this is verse 39. Do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them other, they also, uh, turn to them 
the other also. Turn the other cheek, right? So, you know, back in the day, like people who are French and stuff, they would have little gloves. They'd walk up to someone and they'd be like, <laughs> if you're French, I apologize. That was insulting and demeaning to your culture. But my point is this, that when you strike someone with that glove, <laughs> is that meant to be a physical assault or is it meant to be an insult? Right, the go- though I'm doing something physical, I'm, my goal is to insult you, not to physically accost you. Do you see? And so what Jesus is talking here is that slap on the face. This isn't, a, this isn't physical abuse. Watch, note that. This isn't physical abuse. This is an insult. When someone insults you by slapping you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. Do you see? Yeah, great. Sounds awesome, Jesus. Let's see what else you have to say about the matter. Okay. Uh, let's see here. How about uh, if anyone would sue you, oh boy, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So again, you're going to give them, the, they're going to take your left cheek, you're going to give them the right cheek. They want to sue you for this, you give them the other thing also. Wait, you want me to be generous with someone who's imposing upon my good graces? Let's keep going. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. What? Now, that language, right, we use it in a lot of customers, for those of us that work in customer service or we've been to some sort of, you know, convention where they're talking about, you know, the values of your company. They're going to say, you know, at our company, we're going to go the extra mile, right? That's saturated, but generally that's positive, but I want you to see that this is actually very painful because the idea isn't, I'm going to go the extra mile for you. This is, uh, okay, so if you are one of Jesus' original audiences here, you're Jewish, and you're sitting uh, in your home, uh, homeland that's currently being occupied by the Roman Empire, which means that your authorities are your enemies militarily. You with me on that one? Now, the Roman military, very powerful. One of the things that they would allow for is if a soldier had a, a burden or was carrying something, they could take any one of the citizens that were, uh, that, uh, that were subject to them and they could say, hey, you, stop everything you're doing and carry this. And the limit that you would carry it was roughly a mile. So you're just minding your own business. Roman's, Roman dude shows up and he's like, hey, I want you to stop what you're doing and I'm going to make you march. Carry this burden down with you. And Jesus says, when that happens... Double down. <laughs> Whatever, Jesus. That's crazy. <laughs> right? Do you see how painful this is? And then finally, give to the one who begs from you, who imposes upon your good graces. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And then he goes on to say this. I mean, this is absolutely nutty. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. And don't just stop there, right? So like, uh, this isn't like, I love you, right? You take those kids in the playground, and what, what you know, they, they, they appeal to the courtroom of the adult, whoever's the supervisor, and uh, usually what'll happen is uh, the adult or the guardian or whatever will be like, okay, Billy, go apologize to Bobby. And it's always heartfelt, it's some of the most wonderful, gospel-centric, grace-filled. I mean, what happens, right? Bobby goes to Billy, I'm sorry. Now hug. I'm sorry you're such an idiot. Right? So for those of us, it's like, oh, love your enemies. It's like going up to an enemy and be like, I love you. 
theoretically. I, I love you in principle. Not only love, which is, which is hard enough, but pray for those who persecute you. Go to God on their behalf for their flourishing. What? And we all think this is cute. We all think this is a great idea until, until we're wronged. And this tension, desire for justice, desire for mercy, it's felt most uh, incredibly there. I mean, just have you ever been slandered by somebody? What do you want to do? You want to slander right back, right? Have you ever had a supervisor or a leader take credit for your work using their position of power and you went the extra mile and they took credit for it, right? Kind of like that soldier making you carry the burden. Right? That soldier got credit for carrying the burden two miles. The Jewish citizen didn't get any credit. Right? Have, you, have you ever had a leader or a person in power take credit for your hard work? Have you ever had a family member uh, miss expectations? Hey, happy Thanksgiving, by the way. You know what the holidays always remind us of? How miserable some of our families are because we're just at each other. I mean, for some of us, the holidays are, are just like the worst time of year because they're just these missed expectations. By the way, unspoken expectations are always missed. Just want to say that. So make sure you're communicating with family. But have you ever had somebody, right, not do something you expected them to do that you love, and you think, boy, if they would have loved me, they would have done that? Have you ever been offended by something that somebody said? Have you ever been on Facebook? <laughs> if you have, you've been offended by something that somebody else said. How do we love our enemies? I mean, how do I actively pray for that person when they're actively persecuting me? They're going after me currently, right? Notice the text. Pray for those who, what, persecute, not have persecuted you, but are currently in the process of desiring you injury. Pray for their flourishing. This is insane. P.S., when we pray for our enemies, it humanizes our enemies because we have a tendency to make monsters out of those who hurt us. But when we pray for our enemies, and, we, and, and I'm not talking about praying for you like that country song, you know, I'm praying for you, I'm praying you lose your job. I'm praying you fall down and smash your face into the ground, right? I'm praying for you. I mean praying for their flourishing, right? When we pray for their flourishing, it does humanize them. It doesn't legitimize what they're doing, but it does humanize it reminds us that we are also enemies. Hmm? So in those moments where you're slandered or there's mixed expectations or there's a leader taking credit or uh, who's, who's leveraging their power to take from you uh, when you're offended, there's three options. You have three options. These are the three um, trajectories of the heart. These are your three options. These are my three options. Here they are. Number one, you can seek to personally retaliate and just beget more evil. You can answer evil for evil and be overcome by evil. You can add more evil into the world by seeking their destruction through your retaliation. Two, you can retreat 
You can run away. You can act like nothing ever happened. You can bury that anger. You can bury that rage so deep within you that it's not for another 40 years when you're sitting on a counsel, at a, in a counselor's office that you discover that you haven't dealt with that yet. You let it eat you up inside and just, just allow yourself to be a doormat. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's like nothing ever happened. We're not called to retaliate personally, and we're also not called to retreat. What we're called to do is rest in the one who will bring about ultimate retaliation. We're called to rest in the one who will bring about vengeance. Uh, Romans 12, 19 says this, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We desire justice. So we can either seek to get vengeance for ourselves, or we can act like that desire doesn't even exist, like nothing ever happened, we can retreat, or we can rest in the one who promises to bring about ultimate justice. And we can, in the moment, seek the flourishing of our enemies. Justice is not the same as vengeance. Now, real quick, I wanted to make a quick point about this. What do you do... Okay, so if someone personally is injurious towards me, somebody personally offends me, what I'm called not to do, I'm called not to seek retribution on my own, but I'm not called to be a doormat and just allow that person to trample all over me. Rather, I'm called to pray for their flourishing, and I would argue one of the ways that I would love that enemy is to appeal to the appropriate authorities because them, that enemy of mine, if that enemy continues to do that destructive behavior, to live out that destructive pattern by abusing me, that will end in their despair. And so by appealing to the proper authority, depending on the circumstance, I'm actually looking for their benefit because they need to stop that destructive behavior. Y'all with me? Yeah. Okay, so we're not called to be a doormat, but we're called also not to personally seek retribution, but we are called to seek after those who are in authority, who are appropriately in authority, uh, praying for an approximation of justice. Now, what do you do when the authority is corrupt? What do you do when the authority is the problem? What do you do when the system's the problem? What do you do when those who are charged with uh, bringing about justice are actually propagating injustice? I'm glad you asked. Uh, in a couple of days, a bunch of kids are gonna get dressed up and go door to door begging for candy in celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, <laughs> which is October 31st. I know you all knew that. Um, I know that that's what your hopes are set upon, and we'll all be singing some of Luther's hymns on Tuesday. So, yeah, so this dude named Martin Luther, right? Uh, he, was, uh, he was a very religiously devout man, but uh, he was hearing that God hated him, that God was uh, vengeful towards him, that, that there was no way for him to uh, be in loving relationship with God. And many of the church leaders at the time, especially in his region, they were propagating that idea that those who were in power, they were leveraging that power at the expense of the people by lying to them about what the scripture said and abusing many of them. And so Luther, Martin Luther, he uh, posted uh, uh, a, basically a protest up on a door, right? He had some theses and everything, and, and this is the 500th anniversary of that moment. Now, uh, so for those of us that are fil uh, familiar um, with Christianity, I know not all of us are, and if you're not, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, I'm so glad you're here, and I, I hope that today's a blessing to you. But for those of us familiar with Christianity, there's generally considered to be three uh, primary um, 
divisions within uh, the Christian church. Uh, one would be the Roman Catholics, uh, the others would be uh, the Eastern Orthodox, the Orthodox Church, and the third, uh, which is what Desert Springs Bible Church is under the umbrella of, is called what? Does anybody know? Protestant. Protest ant. So either we're protesting ants or we're named after the act of protesting against uh, evil systems. And now, Martin Luther did it in a certain way. He didn't create a militaristic uprising. He used his words. He, he, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, engaged in peaceful protests, trying to overhaul the system from within. In fact, his desire early on, especially, was to maintain unity within the church, but to see reform. Uh, So the Reformation is looking for reform, reform of the church structures and uh, the beliefs that were being propagated at the time. And so we are in a tradition of people who've protested against unjust authorities and unjust systems. But there's a, now check this out. All right, hold on. There is a righteous way to protest, and there's a what? unrighteous way to protest. Hmm? Many years later, in fact, it was 1934, an African-American pastor from Georgia went to a preacher's conference in Berlin. Now, just so you're aware, preacher's conferences, so much fun. Um, Every year, I think, man, I could add more fun in my life if I could just go to a preacher's conference. They're not fun. FYI, you're not missing out on much. But this, uh, pastor, this man, pastor from Georgia, 1934, went to Berlin for an international pastor's conference. And there he learned more about Martin Luther, the one who protested the abuses of an unjust system. And he was so taken by what he saw in the life of Martin Luther that he actually changed his name from Michael to Martin Luther. Now, his last name was King. Michael King changed his name to Martin Luther King. Now, he had a five-year-old son at the time named Michael Jr., and it wasn't very much longer after that Michael Jr. changed his name to Martin Luther King Jr. And in uh, next year, this year we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Next year we celebrate the 50th anniversary. We recognize the 50th anniversary of King's death. And we recognize the work that he did as a Christian, striving to fight, justly fight against unjust systems. You with me? There's a righteous way to fight an unjust system. There's an unrighteous way to fight an unjust system. But here now, Jesus is saying, when it comes to you personally, when it is at your doorstep personally, when you're the one who has been personally offended, do not seek personal vengeance or retaliation. Rather, turn the other cheek. Now, that doesn't mean be a doormat. It does, I absolutely believe that loving our enemies means appealing to authorities so that they will no longer propagate that sinful and evil behavior. But in the moment, in the moment when we're wronged, everything within us is screaming out vengeance, right? I mean, have you ever been wronged for reals? What do you want? You just want vengeance. I mean, what do we do in that moment? How do we not pick up the sword? Miroslav Volf, who's a theologian and an author, is Croatian, and he writes of his experience during the wars in Yugoslavia and the ethnic cleansing that happened, of which his family was victim, victim of 
rapes, and abuse, physical abuses, and torture. And Wolf clings to the wrath of God. You see, we're interesting, and we're, P.S., not, I'm not saying this is for all of us. Many of us, not all of us, many of us are spoiled. We're spoiled, and one of the ways that I know that we've become, myself included, is we've become spoiled, is we actually are disgusted at the idea of a vengeful God. You see, in our culture, in our community, generally speaking, we don't want to hear about the wrath of God, do we? Right? If I publish, hey, everyone, come on in. We'd love to hear about, we're going to preach on the wrath of God. No one's singing. No one's marking that on their calendar, right? As a community, we generally do not want to hear about the vengeance of God, do we? Or am I reading it wrong? Maybe I'm reading it wrong. We want to talk about love, but let me ask you this. Can a loving God not be vengeful when his children are raped, beaten, abused, and murdered? Let me ask you this. If my daughter was attacked by someone and I said, you know what? I'm a father of love. It doesn't bother me. Would you believe that I was a father of love? Come on. You see, it's a bad dad that doesn't care when his children are... Where, where, where evil is done against his children. It's a bad dad. You see, if God is not vengeful, if he does not burn in wrath against evil and injustice, he's actually not loving. You with me? And we're spoiled because we don't connect the dots, but Wolf, coming from the background that he comes from, says this. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. Let me say that one more time. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence, either God's vengeance or my vengeance. There is no scenario in which vengeance does not occur. We either entrust it to God or we get after it ourselves. He goes on to say this, most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning it by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges justly. He goes on to say, so violence thrives, secretly nourished by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. The practice of nonviolence requires, the practice, let me say it again, the practice of nonviolence or non-retribution requires a belief in divine vengeance. That's why the scriptures say, don't get after vengeance on your own, rather entrust it to the Lord, for vengeance is the Lord's, and that's good news for those of us that have been injured. That's good news for those of us that have had evil done against us. That's good news. God, does not, God is not disinterested in the evil that's been done to me. But... This creates a predicament for me because there's two types of people in the world. 
You see it in verse 45. For he, that's God, makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. Two types of people, who were they? Evil, good. Evil and good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Two types of people, what? Just, what else? Unjust. And the sun rises and sets on the good and the evil, and the rain falls. God showers blessings on the just and the unjust. And I worry that when I pray that God would eradicate all the injustices in the world, I worry he'll start with me. When I pray, God, put an end to evil, end evil, I'm a little bit concerned that he'll say, okay, and he'll start with me. Because I have done evil. I have been the enemy that some of you are called to love and pray for. When people draw up a list of friends and enemies, I'm on the enemies list, and rightfully so. See, there's the just, and then there's the unjust, and the rain falls on both. And I know that I'm in one of those categories. And upon self-examination, I'm really concerned I'm in the unjust, evil category. And I can't read the Sermon on the Mount, I'll just speak for myself, I can't read the Sermon on the Mount and feel smug and self-justified. And maybe if you do, if right now you're feeling like I'm, I'm totally killing it on this whole, like, be a good person thing, Let me just give you the last thing that Jesus says in the text for this morning. Therefore, verse uh, 48, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are you crushing it right now? Walking around, guess who's as perfect as God? Me. (laughs) You know, do you know the type, do you know what's a consistent factor in uh, genocidal maniacs? They think they're God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, who can stand? Who can, I mean, who can stand out of the way to this? How do we do this? Oh, my. There's a, a clue in the text. There's a clue. I'm going to read it again, and I want you just to think for a second. Therefore, uh, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now notice the term. Did the author say, did Jesus say, as the king and creator of the universe is perfect? Is that what he said? No, he didn't say that. Could have. Could have even said that? Yep. Uh, He didn't say, be perfect as uh, the Lord of the cosmos is perfect. Did he say that? He could have, right? Guys, he could have, right? What does he say? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father. That's interesting language. So if God, therefore, is my father, then that would make me what? Son or daughter. That would make me, then, child of God. That would make, that would, that would intimate this idea that though I've run away, maybe God's brought me back. Like, uh, he's my father and I'm his son or daughter. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Because we have to ask the question, what is it that makes unjust, evil people sons and daughters of God? How does that work? Because it cannot be being a good person. 
right? Are you guys with me on that? Like, did you hear what Jesus said in these 10 verses? If you walk away today thinking, I'm gonna go to heaven when I die because I'm a good person, you don't know how to read the teachings of Jesus because he says, you have to be perfect like God is perfect. So how is it that God makes unjust, evil people sons and daughters? How is it that when God sees me, for those who repent and believe in the gospel, how is it that when God sees me, he thinks perfect righteousness? Martin Luther had it. In fact, he called it the great exchange. That on the cross, on that Good Friday, that Jesus took on the sins of the world. He exchanged that and gave to, or the word is imputed, his righteousness unto all who call on the name of the Lord. There's a text, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How is that? How is it that God looks at unjust, evil people and calls them son and daughter and says, when I look at you, I see perfect righteousness. It happens at the cross that Jesus takes on our sin and imputes to us or gives to us his righteousness. When God, so for those of us that are Christians, when God sees you, he sees the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ. That is how You can have a God who judges justly hmm, and cares about evil and is raging in wrath against evil and still show grace in forgiving evil people. That's how you get it, is because Jesus paid it all. And he takes on my sin and he gives to me his righteousness. This is a great exchange. And there's the power to actually do this. We're going to end the sermon. We're not going to end with singing today. We're going to do something a little bit different. I'm not going to do anything super weird. I have a, 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 some selections, some, some, some verses that I've selected out of Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. What I'm going to do now is I would ask that you just would pause. If you, if you have your scriptures, uh, you're free to... Try to follow along, but I'm not citing the sources every time I go through this. What I, what I would rather you do is to hear the words and to receive them and to contemplate and to think, Lord, what are you speaking to me now through your word? And so if it helps to close your eyes, I would encourage you to do that. Friends, for those of us that aren't yet followers of Jesus, I'm going to read through the Gospels. This is the crucifixion account. This is the very center of what those of us that follow Jesus believe as we think about how is it that evil people can be called sons and daughters of God. As I read through this account, what I'm going to do is there's going to be a few times where I'm going to add commentary and I'm going to connect what I'm reading through the Gospels, uh, the Gospel accounts of the crucifixion. I'm going to connect it to the Sermon on the Mount. So I hope that you will um, forgive a little bit of the flourishing, but I, I, think it will, uh, I think it will help us make some connections here because Jesus didn't just give the Sermon on the Mount and leave. He gave the Sermon on the Mount, and then he gave his life. You see, the one who calls us to turn the other cheek when, we, when someone strikes us and insults us, he, he didn't just tell us to do that. He actually, he actually did it. 
Jesus isn't one who just taught us that when someone gets after you, they want your cloak, give them your tunic as well. He actually, he actually did it. Jesus is not one who just taught us to go an extra mile when a soldier commands you to march. He actually marched, carrying a heavy burden. You see, Jesus is not one who simply called us to be generous to those who impose upon our grace. He did it. Jesus is not one who simply calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He did it. The scriptures read that the chief priests and the scribes stood by him, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And the crowds were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And their voices prevailed. And so Pilate, a man in control, a man of power, Pilate decided that their demand would be granted. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, and they spit on him, and they took a reed and they struck him on the head. And when they were done mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. They led him out to crucify him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And they took his garments, divided them into four parts, and also his tunic. And one of the criminals said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And Jesus died. And Jesus rose from the grave three days later, conquering over Satan, sin, and death. And he lives in all who call upon the name of the Lord. He lives in you. And he not only teaches us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, he did it. For who is not left to their own devices? Who is not an enemy of God? And so if God loves his enemies, if Jesus loves his enemies and prays for those who persecute him, so too can we. Because here in this command, there is no stronger example of the Christian ethic and there is no clearer need for divine power. In this command to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, there is no clearer, more powerful example of the Christian ethic. And there is no more profound, clear need for the power of God within us. Friends, do you know that Jesus Christ's power lives in and through you? That these commands are overwhelming if left to our own devices, but we are not left on our own. Rather, Christ is risen, and he lives through us. 
And as we rely on him, as we entrust ourselves to the one who will bring about perfect justice, he gives us the strength and the power to do it.